0: You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hello, Mosaic. I I love every new series bumpers we get. I get to add a new song to my playlist on Spotify. Gregory does a great job with those. Well, hello, happy Sunday. My name is Brett Milliken, one of the pastors here. I will be doing our sermon this morning. Our reading is coming out of Luke chapter 2. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Now, I know you have not just suddenly flashed forward to a Christmas service We are in the middle of a series, at the very front end of a series that we're calling Reversal, in which we are looking at how trusting Jesus turns it all around. And today we're going to see how trusting Jesus tilts our cultural norms and expectations when it comes to the way power and influence work in our world. In his book, The Upside Down Kingdom, Donald Craybill writes this. He says, The values and norms of our society become so deeply ingrained in our minds that we find it difficult to imagine alternatives. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus presents the kingdom as a new order, breaking in upon and overturning old ways, old values, old assumptions. If it does anything, the kingdom of God shatters the assumptions which govern our lives. As kingdom citizens, We can't assume that things are right just because that's the way they are. The upside down perspective focuses the points of difference between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. And so today I want to take a look at the upside down perspective when it comes to our view of power and influence. I mean, in the day of social media and cable news and political agendas, what feels like a constant power grab, a posturing for your opinion to be the loudest in a you-do-you society, how are we called to live? How does this upside-down kingdom that Jesus ushered in almost 2,000 years ago tilt the scales when it comes to power and influence? And how does the gospel empower us to use whatever influence and power we do have in a way that gives life to others, rather than taking it for ourselves. So Luke shows us how to do this in the tilting of three cultural norms. Today, I want to look at tilting the way of power, tilting the truth of reality, and tilting the source of life. Let's revisit our scripture here. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. Now, we're all familiar with this passage again because of Christmas. But remember, Luke isn't writing a Christmas story here. Luke is documenting the historical facts of when, where, and to whom God chose to reveal the coming of his son. So, when did Luke tell us this is happening? Well, Luke says it's when Augustus was Caesar and Quirinius was governing in Syria. And we know from chapter 1, it's also when Herod the Great was king over the Jewish people. Now, Herod was an Edomite, and he had been appointed by Rome, set in to rule over the Israelites. Now, the Edomites were longtime enemies of Israel because they were the descendants of Esau, whereas Israel was the descendants of Jacob. So here in Luke's account, we have an enemy king in power over the Israelites under the authority of Rome, who had conquered and subjugated Israel nearly 70 years earlier. So we have Rome, the superpower, Caesar Augustus, who was known as Lord of All by the Romans, Quirinius, who was Augustus' right-hand man, and Herod, a puppet king and tyrant, who, as history records, tells us he had his wife and multiple children murdered, because he was paranoid they were trying to overthrow him. And who in the upcoming years from Luke's account would have all the baby boys in his land murdered because of fear of the Messiah being born. You see, this is how the world handled power then. And it's pretty much how the world handles power today too. The strong dominating the weak, a constant pursuit to get the upper hand, to gain an advantage to continually elevate yourself at the expense of others. As first century Roman historian Tacitus wrote, great empires are not maintained by timidity. It is into this historical context that Luke says the son of God was birthed. That answers the question of when this was happening, but where does Luke tell us this is happening? Well, he says in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, David was Israel's greatest king. He was called the man after God's own heart. Now, did he make some bad decisions along the way? Absolutely, he did. But even then, he remained humble and repentant. When he faced down Goliath, who did he acknowledge had given him the victory? God. When he had the chance to kill Saul, the first king of Israel, who was trying to murder David out of jealousy, David refused to do so because he said God put him in that position and only God can take him out. When confronted with his own sin of adultery, David, the king falls to his knees, cries out to God for forgiveness rather than having the man who confronted him put to death. So the point is David was not like Herod or he wasn't like Caesar. He didn't see power as something to grasp for. He saw it as something that only God can place in your hands and meant to be used for the service of others. Now it was prophesied in the Old Testament that the promised Messiah would be a descendant of this man after God's own heart. And Luke tells us that the reason Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem is because Joseph was a descendant of David and David was from Bethlehem. So Luke is making sure we see the the juxtaposition here between Caesar, Quirinius, and Herod compared to David, Mary, and Joseph. The difference between those ruling in power from Rome and those being ruled in the little town of Bethlehem, which is part of the to whom question that Luke is trying to answer as well. Who are the major players in this biographical retelling of the birth of Jesus? Well, we've seen the the dominant tyrannical leaders that we've we've mentioned. We've got the the peasant newlyweds that we just discussed. But then Luke mentions three additional characters in this narrative, shepherds, Simeon, and Anna. Anna. Now, the birth of the Messiah, the King of Kings, comes through this newly married peasant couple, forced to deliver their baby in a barn. His birth is then proclaimed to a group of shepherds out in the field, and he is then blessed and anointed by a feeble old man and a widow in her 80s in the temple. Now, shepherds were the lowest of the low in this cultural society now. Men who were considered to be so untrustworthy, they weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law. They were the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. And yet it is to these men that God chooses to make his royal announcement known that the true Lord of the world had just arrived. And Simeon was a righteous man. He may have been respected by other Jews, but he would have had very little of any influence in the wider Roman society. And Anna, well, being a widow wasn't good to start with. But being a widow who was beyond the age of childbearing and unable to work would have made her an absolute nothing in that cultural norm. And yet, it is Simeon and Anna, not the high priest, who first bless and anoint this newborn king. See, the scene Luke is painting for us is this, that in the midst of these power-grabbing rulers who use their authority to dominate, subjugate, abuse, and enslave, comes a helpless newborn baby born to impoverished parents, proclaimed by outcast shepherds, and blessed by weak and frail second-class citizens. This is the tilting of the way of power. So the world says wealth, position, titles, the envy and fear of others, that that's what real power looks like. But the upside-down kingdom tilts the scales in this direction. It says real power comes through what the world calls weak, foolish, and insignificant. In his book, The Challenge of Jesus, N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, when God wants to sort out the world, as the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount make clear, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the broken, the justice-hungry, the peacemakers, the pure-hearted, and so on. See, in God's kingdom, power isn't found in the strength of man's efforts. It's found in the strength of God's love, which most often looks like weakness in the eyes of the culturally strong. But that is a really, really hard truth to believe, isn't it? I mean, if we're being honest, that upside down view of power doesn't always look like strength to us either. That upside view of power doesn't always feel powerful, which brings us to the second way God's kingdom tilts the scales of our cultural norms, tilting the truth of reality. We pick it up in verses nine through 11. It says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now what is reality? Is it merely what we feel or what we experience? Is it just a mental construct that we invent in order to cope with our circumstances? Is it something that we can understand by choosing the red pill instead of the blue pill? Maybe if you're wearing a really cool black outfit. But what is reality? Now, I know that's a philosophical question that I'm asking in the theological setting, but I think we have to bring those two together to understand the question. I mean, how many times have you been certain about the outcome of a situation and your emotions begin to churn and your mind begins to anticipate what's about to happen, only to have the outcome go in a direction you never would have anticipated it going? Why is that? It's because true reality isn't based on something we see, feel, or experience. It's based on God's authority and sovereign rule over the things we see, feel, and experience. See, to prove this, all we need to do is look at the cross of Calvary. I mean, when it looked and felt like evil had won its greatest victory, it had actually suffered its ultimate defeat. As Jesus hung there on the cross, his disciples were fleeing, Peter was denying, the two Marys were crying in anguish, Pilate was washing his hands, Caiaphas was celebrating, and the forces of darkness and evil were enjoying what they thought was the overthrowing of God's plan of redemption. That's what looked and felt like reality. But as Paul tells us in Colossians 2, what was actually happening was that he was disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, three days after what felt like reality, the disciples were dumbfounded. Peter was confessing his love. The two Marys were crying tears of joy. Pilate was filled with fear. Caiaphas was inventing lies to explain why the body had gone missing. And the forces of darkness, even death itself, had been overthrown. See, our reality is not found in our perception of the events unfolding in our lives. But in the truth of what God is doing through those events to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So let me show you where Luke is highlighting this for us in our passage. In, verse, in chapter 2, we're told the angel had to come and encourage the shepherds to what? Fear not. In chapter 1, the angel comes to Mary and says, do not be afraid. Over in Matthew's account, the angel comes to Joseph and says, do not be afraid. See, was it wasn't just because an angel was talking to them that they were fearful. Well, I'm sure that had something to do with it. No, Joseph was afraid because he knew what people were going to think when his fiance started rubbing her belly and walking with her hands on the small of her back. (laughs) Mary was afraid because she knew that neither Joseph nor her parents would believe her when she said, God got me pregnant. The shepherds were afraid because they knew being in the very presence of God certainly meant imminent death. And yet what felt like a catastrophe to each one of them was actually the beginning of their deliverance. But in the midst of that perception of weakness, the angel's message to the shepherds is this For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See, it was a proclamation not of impending doom, but of what God was doing, that God was doing something new, that something had just happened that would flip the power structure that they were so familiar with on its head. Caesar was no longer Lord. Herod was no longer Lord. This descendant of David, this newborn Messiah, was now the true Lord of creation come in the flesh. So what they thought would certainly be the loss of life was actually the birthing of their redemption. But they had to look beyond their perception of reality and into the true reality of God's sovereign rule. And to see the truth of our reality, we have to do the same thing in our day and age as well. So we live in a world where it looks like the strong dominate the weak, where it feels like the only way to succeed is to elevate ourselves in an attempt to prove that we have value, that we are somebody indeed. And if we only see the reality of what's happening on the surface, then we too will find ourselves caught up in a game of king of the hill. See, when we see people at work who manipulate and cut corners getting the promotion, we'll be tempted to do the same thing. At school, when it feels like you, you just can't seem to fit in because you refuse to compromise who you know God has called you to be, you'll find yourself justifying choices you never imagined yourself ever making. On social media, when others are gaining influence with their staged photos and overhyped experiences while the only people who are subscribing and liking to your posts happen to have the same last name as you, you'll begin to overhype your things as well can feel a lot like my man Norm from the old TV show Cheers once said. It's a dog-eat-dog world, Sammy, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. (laughs) See, if we only see the perceived reality of our circumstances, then it can feel like weakness. And the fear that results will lead us to pursue power the same way the world pursues it. See, fear is the driving force behind every false perception and the choices we make in response to those perceptions. And fear always makes us want to reach for whatever it is we think will give us control to stabilize our circumstances. When fear gripped Adam and Eve because they thought God was no longer trustworthy, what did they reach for? The fruit. When fear gripped Abraham because God still had not given him a son 11 years into his promise, what did he reach for? His wife's servant, Hagar. When fear gripped Peter's heart in the garden as Jesus was being arrested, what did he reach for? his sword. What about you? What about me? When that fear of failure, that fear of loneliness, that fear of weakness grips us, what do we reach for? Where do we go to feel powerful when gripped by the fear of weakness? Whatever, or maybe whoever that is, that is what you consider to be your source of life. And if that is something created rather than the creator, then it has a shelf life. And it's only a matter of time before it fails you and you find yourself even more afraid than you were before. But there is a way to keep our hearts from reaching for those idols, a way to let God's upside down kingdom tilt the truth of our reality. And it's by seeing what Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, Simeon, and Anna all saw, which is point number three, God's tilting the source of life. And when Mary received a message that felt like personal death, she clung to the promise that was to come. When Joseph received a message that felt like social death, he clung to the promise that was to come. When the shepherds feared for their lives on the hill that night, they clung to the promise of what was to come. Simeon, in his fable state, was clinging to the promise of what was to come. And for decades, Anna had experienced what felt like death on a daily basis. And yet she refused to leave the temple because she was clinging to the promise of what was to come. And the promise that was to come was God's restoration through the Messiah. So the Messiah was the one that was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He was the one that was gonna finally put everything right again. He was gonna come in even greater power than the Roman Empire. But this is where God begins to tilt the source of life. Because Jesus did come to do all those things, just not in a way that anyone expected it. See, our world tells us if you want to live life to the fullest, then you have to win. You have to succeed. It tells us that true life is found in pleasure and buying nice things and our sexual expression and the number of followers or likes or subscribers you have. The world tells us that you know you're on top when everybody else is looking up at you with envy. But is that really where the source of life is found? I mean, come on. Anyone who is honest with themselves will tell you that that kind of life sure feels like dying the same death over and over again. And yet, we continue to drive around in that cul-de-sac thinking we're getting somewhere, even though it's the same mailboxes showing up in our passenger side window over and over again. Why is that? Why does that definition of life always leave us feeling dead inside? Well, it's because that kind of life, that kind of truth, that kind of way is rooted in fear, And fear only always leads to anxiety, stress, insecurity, and eventually death. So that kind of way is really no way at all. That kind of truth is no truth at all. That kind of life is no life at all. But 30 years after this scene in Luke 2, Jesus comes proclaiming that there is a better way to view power, a better truth to our reality, and a better source of life we can look for. In John 14, 6, he proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, Simeon, Anna, they hoped in what the Messiah was going to do. But today, we can have hope in what the Messiah has already done. See, through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has overthrown the kingdoms of this world, just not in the same way the kingdoms of this world overthrow each other. See, that's why when Pilate asked, are you really a king? Jesus says, Yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. He wasn't saying his kingdom is from some other place called heaven that exists way out there somewhere. He was saying his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom that works in a different kind of way. Let me explain. In Luke 1, how does the angel greet Mary? He calls her highly favored. Now, that word "favorite" is from the root word for grace, charis. Now, what is grace? Grace isn't just God withholding his judgment from our sin. In its fullness, grace is God's empowering us to become something we could never become on our own through his unconditional love. When the angel greets Joseph, what does he say to him? Joseph, son of David. Meaning that Joseph was about to experience what he was about to experience was because of God's promise made to someone else. When the angel appears to the shepherds, he says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When Luke introduces us to Simeon, he says, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And when we meet Anna, Luke says that coming at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. See, Mary received grace through God's choosing. Joseph received grace based on the promise made to another. The shepherds received grace to deliver a message to the people. Simeon received grace through a revelation of the Holy Spirit. And Anna received grace to proclaim God's redemption. Each of them received love that they had not deserved in order to become the kind of people they did not see themselves as being. And through the unconditional love of God, these people, the world called weak, insignificant outcasts, become the vessels through which the ultimate king and his kingdom come into the world. The ones the world considered an afterthought become the greatest influencers of their day. Not because they earned it through power, but because in their weakness, God's love was made perfect. And the only reason we know about Herod and Augustus and Quirinius today, because they're footnotes In this story of the birth of this newborn king and his kingdom. See, Mary and Joseph and the others, they realize that the true source of life was not found in the love of power, but in the power of love. How can we have our source of life tilted like this as well? Well, we must also recognize that God has chosen us based on a promise he made to another That we too have been entrusted with a message to deliver, empowered by the same Holy Spirit to proclaim his redemption to the world around us. And what is that redemption? Well, it is the reality that we can never be powerful enough, never be strong enough, never be smart enough, never be liked enough to earn our way into God's kingdom. Because his kingdom is built on unconditional love. And that is not something you can earn through performance or influence. If you could, it would no longer be unconditional. It is only in acknowledging our lack of power that the gates of God's kingdom are flung open to us. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. And in Romans 5, he goes on to say, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, the story of God's redemption is that in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. But why is that? Well, it's because in that place of weakness, that inability to save ourselves, in that moment that we realize that we had nothing to offer God, that it was then that he loved us most. So when we grasp that, we begin to break out of the fear that drives our hearts to chase after the things the world calls success and power. So when you realize that you could never be more loved, you can never be more accepted, never be more affirmed than you already are right now by the king of the universe, then you can let go of that need to prove yourself, to dominate others, to show the world how awesome you really are. See, so when you break free of that fear, then you're truly free. There's nothing more powerful in this world than a person who knows they are fully loved and truly free. See, that's what made Jesus a threat to the leaders in his day. He knew who he was in the Father. That's what made Paul such a threat to the Roman Empire. The, the Roman leaders said, we're gonna kill you to live as Christ who dies gain. We're gonna throw you in prison. I'll just get all your guards saved. They couldn't do anything to Paul. Because he knew who he was in Christ. And for nearly 2,000 years, it is this same love and this same freedom that has made the church of Jesus a threat to the powers and principalities and the forces of darkness in our world. See, throughout history, followers of Jesus have been this unstoppable force of love and service as they proclaim the truth of Jesus and his kingdom. And to this day, There has not been a regime, a king, a president, a military force, nothing the world calls powerful that has been able to stop the advancing of God's kingdom in the earth. Now have people who call themselves Christians misrepresented Jesus along the way? Absolutely. But I would argue that wherever that has happened, it's because those people are looking more to their own strength and fear than they are to the power of Christ in love. And today, we have that same choice to make. Will we, Mosaic Church, be the kind of community who confesses our own weaknesses, who finds our identity in the powerful foolishness of the cross, who seek to pour ourselves out in the power of love rather than lifting ourselves up in the love of power? It is the deepest hope and desire of my heart that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. I believe that's who God has called us to be. Not a church trying to make a name for ourselves, a church trying to put the name of Jesus on display. Not a church who points to our own awesomeness or goodness, but a church who points to the amazing power of the grace of God be that kind of community. We're gonna to have to ask ourselves some really hard questions. We're gonna to have to be brutally honest with the way we answer those questions. So as we close, I wanna walk you through a few questions here that I wanna challenge you to ask yourself today and tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday. Maybe every hour maybe every five minutes. (laughs) I want you to ask yourself this, am I looking to something or someone other than Jesus to be my strength and identity? What fear is motivating my desire to reach for those things? Where do I feel incomplete? If I really believe that Jesus loves me, that he gave himself for me, that he chose me and that he calls me his own, what would I do differently? And then ask the Holy Spirit to give you the faith to trust that God's strength will be made perfect in that moment of weakness. See, every person in this room has some kind of fear that we're running from. Some kind of idea of hell that we're trying to avoid. And we all go looking for something to save us from that place. And Whatever it is that we're looking to for that salvation, that's what you're worshiping. That's what you're becoming. And what the city of Austin doesn't need is another group of people trying to pretend there's something that they're not. What the city needs is a community of people who are willing to say, it's only by the power of Christ that we are who we are. There is no other hope for this world. It's all been tried. It's all been found wanting, except for Jesus. Would you join me as I pray? Father, we just confess our need more of you, but we confess those fears, Lord, that are rising up in our hearts and our thoughts right now, Holy Spirit, even as you put them in front of us, Lord, loneliness, poverty, insignificance, pain, disease, sickness, death. Or those voices that come to speak to us, to accuse you to our hearts, to accuse us to ourselves. Lord, I thank you today. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. That you call out to us as your sons and your daughters, Lord. And all we need do is acknowledge our need for you. We can't earn it. We can't prove it. You're not looking for us to. You said, you've already demonstrated your love for us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we embrace our own weakness, our own foolishness, our own inabilities to save ourselves. And as we do, we cry out to you for your power to be made perfect in our weakness. Lord, you help us become the kind of church, the kind of people that don't put ourselves on display the world to see but through whom people see the powerful love of Christ that is our ultimate desire and our greatest need would you help us in that in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store